I'd like to bring you greetings, first of all, in the name of Jesus. It's a pleasure to be here. Greetings from Weavertown and from the brothers and sisters at Weavertown. We've been looking forward to this for quite some time. I told one of the brothers here, I said, I think this is the first time I stepped inside this church building. I've been in the community numerous times. I've been by here. Uh, one time I even played softball in the field out back here when a group of us were at the cabin and we talked to someone here and uh, made arrangements to use the softball field. But uh, you don't really feel like you get to know a church by looking at the building from the outside. So I'm looking forward to spending this time with you and uh, getting to know you a bit better and interacting here this weekend. Psalm 66 verse 5 says, Come and see the works of God. And in the King James Version, it follows by saying he is terrible in his doing towards the children of men. Now, some other versions give a little bit of a different, uh, different aspect there. Uh, one of them says, who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. But come and see the works of God. And I'm wondering, as you think of the works of God, what comes to your mind? What do you think of when you hear the expression, the works of God? Well, probably if I would get some responses from you this evening, I'm guessing the responses that I would hear would probably fall into one of two categories. The works of God in creation, the things that he made, the visible things that we can see is part of the works of God. And then there's also the works of God in redemption, the wonderful work of salvation which he has prepared for us. And many times in Scripture, I believe, the first is used to illustrate the second. In other words, the works of God in creation are often an illustration of the work of God in salvation and what he wants to do in our life. So in that sense, I would like to suggest that I believe it is appropriate that nature study and Bible study go hand in hand because the one can illustrate the other and we can learn from both of them. Jesus referred to nature repeatedly. He did this many times in his parables, in his stories, in his illustrations. And, um, you know, the, the passage that, that um, Daniel read a few minutes ago uh, in the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that Jesus was by the sea, seaside and there's a crowd there and he entered into a ship and he was speaking to the people from that position when he gave this parable. And I can just imagine Jesus standing there looking at this crowd of people before him and off in his hillside, he just sees this sower walking there, spreading this seed out to the field, out in the field. And as he's speaking to the crowds, he just says, behold, a sower went forth to sow. And as he spread his seed. Some fell by the wayside. Look at the birds coming down behind him and picking at some of those seeds that he's throwing out. And he just uses that as an illustration. Or perhaps in the upper room, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he looks out the window into the courtyard, and I can just picture a, a grapevine growing out there. Uh, we spent, our family spent a number of years living in Romania, and it was very common Outside of a house and courtyard, there were grapevines growing. And perhaps someone was even trimming the grapevines. And perhaps Jesus just looks out the window and looks at his disciples and says, You know, 
I'm the vine, and you're the branches. If any man abide in me, the same shall bring forth much fruit. But if any man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. Many times, perhaps as he was sitting on the mountainside teaching his disciples, he looked down at some wildflowers and the grass growing there. He said, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And behold, the fowls of the air, how your father takes care of them. The Bible is just full of these illustrations. And in the Old Testament as well, you read the book of Job, God speaking to Job. Uh, several chapters there, 38 to 41, just one question after another from nature. Read the Psalms and some of the questions there. Psalm 8, the psalmist says, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visitest him? It's a good question to ask. You know, I look at the heavens and I ask questions about myself. You see, the one can illustrate the other. What do you see? When you see a rainbow, what does it say to you? Do you hear God speaking? So I think it's good for us to learn to, to observe nature and to learn about nature. I think that's worthy. But I think it's even better when we look at nature and learn from nature. Not just about it, but learn from it. And that's what I'd like to do uh, this weekend. Someone made the comment that every event in life, great or small, is a parable. And the art of life is to get the message. Now, in the devotional passage, Jesus spake a parable to the disciples, and the disciples were kind of scratching their heads, and they said, but what's the message? What, what's the point? What, what are you saying here? And as we look around at life, can we ask the same question? What's the message? What's the point? What can I learn here? like to uh, read a few verses from Psalm 92 as a uh, starting point for the message this evening. Psalm 92, and I'll read the last four verses of the psalm, verses 12 to 15. Verse 12 talks about trees, and I'm going to talk about some trees this evening. The title of the message is, As the Days of a Tree. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 22 says, For as the days of a tree are the days of my people. So the Bible compares us to a tree. So if we're compared to a tree, what can we learn from a tree? And uh, we're going to look at some things about that uh, this evening. Psalm 92, verse 12 says, The righteous, righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now I'm going to talk about a particular kind of tree this evening and that is the redwood tree. I'm curious, how many of you here have ever been to the, red, to the west coast and have seen redwood trees? Okay, there's maybe a half a dozen or so. Uh, I'll, I'll start by just describing these redwood trees to you a little bit. Uh, as most of you are aware, they are the tallest trees in the world. Some of these trees exceed 350 feet in height. 
Now, I know sometimes when we hear numbers, it's hard to kind of, uh, well, what does that mean? Well, if you are familiar with a silo on a farm, you might find a silo that's 70 feet tall, would not be unusual. And if you look around, you might see some trees that actually reach about the same height, not unusual. Well, what if you'd put two of those silos on top of each other? It might be up to 140, 150 feet. You might find a few trees in Pennsylvania that are that tall, if you go to the right place. But what if you would put five of those silos on top of each other? That is about the height of a redwood tree, 350 feet, some of them. And the sequoia trees, related to the redwoods, similar, aren't quite as tall, but the mass of the trunk is even greater than that of a redwood tree. And some of them have uh, a diameter as wide as 25 feet thick, which I'm not sure might be a little more than from here to the, to the wall. A massive tree. Some of them actually have holes cut through them that you can drive a car right through the tree. Big trees. Now, some of these trees have fallen. Some of them have been cut down. And some people have actually counted the growth rings in these trees to see how old they are. Obviously, a tree doesn't get that big in 50 or 60 years or even 100 or 200 years. And one of these trees they have actually counted 3,300 annual growth rings. Now, what that means is that that tree would have already been over 1,000 years old when Jesus walked on the earth. And when King Saul was anointed king of Israel, that tree would have been a sapling. So they've been around for quite a while. Now, does the Bible talk about redwood trees? Well, it doesn't refer to them directly, but I'd like to look at several verses from Ezekiel. Uh, the passage that I read from, from Psalm 92 referred to the cedars of Lebanon. And the cedars of Lebanon are referred to quite frequently in the scriptures. And uh, they are known as a majestic tree. And Ezekiel 31 actually describes the cedars of Lebanon. And it, he uses this as an illustration to make a comparison for someone. He's comparing them to a, a cedar of Lebanon. Then he goes on to describe these trees. I'm just going to point some things out about these trees. In Ezekiel chapter 31, uh, verse 3, says, Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches and with a shadowing shroud. Now, what does that shadowing shroud mean? What that means is that the top of the tree was actually up in the clouds, and the clouds were like a shroud around the top of the tree. So it's obviously a tall tree here with this shattering shroud around the top, sticking up into the clouds. Verse 5 says, His height was exalted above all the trees of the field. Verse 8, it says, The cedars in the garden could not hide him. The fir trees were not like his boughs. The chestnut trees were not like his branches. Nor any tree in the garden was like unto him in his beauty. And in verse 9, it says, I have made him fair so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied him. So obviously there was something pretty special about this tree. And I find it interesting that scientists would say that the redwood trees and the cedars of Lebanon are very closely related. Although they're not the identical tree, they are very similar. Now, 
Psalm 92, the text that I read, made the statement, the righteous shall flourish, shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. How then shall we grow? What can we learn from a cedar in Lebanon? I'd like to draw several lessons, illustrations from a redwood tree. Three ways in which we as God's people need to become more like these trees. Before we get into that, I brought several cones along here this evening. I actually brought a cone from a redwood tree. As well as a cone from several other kinds of trees. So I'll just show those to you here. First of all, I have this little cone. Then I have this one. And this one. And this one. Getting a little bigger. And this one. It's an actual cone. Now, which cone do you think is from a redwood tree? The littlest one. Well, it's not this one. Uh, this does actually come from California. This is from a sugar pine. I'm not sure I'd want to be walking through the forest when they're dropping off the trees, unless I had a hard hat on. But yeah, this is from a sugar pine. It's not from a redwood. Nor is this one from a redwood. That one I got from South Carolina. It's a loblolly pine. This is a spruce tree from her backyard. The smallest one is a hemlock tree. This one right here is from the redwood tree. So it was almost the smallest cone. So imagine this cone hanging up there in the branches, 350 feet up in the air. Pretty small cone, isn't it? Okay, lesson number one from the redwood tree. The redwood tree has very small beginnings. A very small beginning. In this cone, I'm not sure if there's actually any seeds in here. It's dried out. I've had it for a number of years. But uh, the, the seed of a redwood tree is actually only about a twelfth of an inch long, less than a not much more than a sixteenth of an inch. And it takes a hundred thousand of them to equal one pound. So there's not much to those seeds. And I find it ironic that the tallest trees in the world should grow from such a small seed. Much smaller than a grain of corn or even a grain of wheat. You know, which doesn't grow nearly as big in comparison. The point I want to make is that when God looks for people to serve him, he does not look for people with an inflated opinion of themselves. Someone who thinks they're big and great, you know, a big cone of some sort. God looks for people who are small in their own eyes. He's able to use people who are small in their own eyes. And there's lots of verses from scripture that actually speak to this subject. James 4, verses 6 and 10. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And he says, humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of God. 
and he shall lift you up. Now, can you imagine this cone hanging on the branches 300 plus feet up in the air? And obviously, these cones can't think or talk or whatever, but suppose the seeds in here could realize, you know, this mighty tree that it's growing from and realizes that it's, it has the potential to grow a tree as well. And it's hanging up there hundreds of feet in the air. And it says, I want to grow into a great tree. I want to grow. I hope I can grow. What has to happen before anything can happen with this seed? It has to plummet to the earth. It has to be rained on, maybe walked on, buried in the ground. Basically, it has to die. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat die, it abideth alone. As long as it remains in that lofty position, it's not doing anything. It's not going to grow. Nothing is going to come out of it. Just like that tiny seed needs to tumble to the ground and be hidden in the dirt. In the same way, we need to just be willing to tumble to the ground and be walked on and be covered in the dirt, as it were, so that God can use us. It's the beginning that God is looking for. Several more illustrations, examples. First Samuel 15, Samuel says to King Saul, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? But later in his life, when Saul became great in his own eyes, the Lord rejected him. When he was small in his eyes, God could use him. When he became great in his own eyes, God rejected him. So how do you compare? The next chapter, 1 Samuel 16, when God sent Samuel to anoint a king to replace King Saul, King Samuel also had a little bit of the same mentality. He was looking for someone that, you know, had some significance, had some stature to him. He went to the sons of Jesse. He saw the oldest son and his thought, surely this is God's chosen. God said, no, not him. The next son, the next son. It wasn't any of them. Saul was beginning to get a little bit confused. Finally, he says to Jesse, he says, do you have any more sons? Ah, yeah, well, there's this little fellow out there in the fields with the sheep. Samuel says, bring him in. He brought him in. And God's words to Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. God is looking today for people that are small in their own eyes, small enough so that he can use them in his kingdom. These are the people that can truly rise to great heights for him. And I'd just like to encourage you here in the church. You know, the, the disciples struggled with this idea of greatness. You know, who, who is greatest? You know, am I, am I the greatest? You know, am I going to be, you know, top position? And, uh, you know, probably we're good enough that we do not verbalize some of the same things that the disciples did, but maybe we still think it. You know, we compare ourselves among ourselves. Who is the greatest person in your church anyway? Well, it may not be a minister. It may not be the most eloquent Sunday school teacher or someone that has served overseas somewhere. 
It may be perhaps some widow who unknown to anyone else spends hours on her knees praying for needs in her family, praying for grandchildren, praying for ministers, praying for the lost, praying for the young families in the church. That could be the greatest person. Or maybe it's the old couple who's living as frugally as they can so that they can just give a little bit more and a little bit more to the work of God in supporting his mission. Perhaps it's the young couple who is laboring unceasingly to raise their children to serve God. You know, people that are not seen standing up front for their greatness, these are the people who are truly great in God's eyes. I've enjoyed reading stories of missionaries, some well-known missionaries that have become famous, you could say, people like David Livingston, uh, Hudson Taylor. And one thing that I find interesting as I read these stories is to read about the influence of their parents on their lives. And I understand that Hudson Taylor's parents had a vision for the work in China. And before Hudson Taylor was born, they prayed to God and said, God, if you see fit to give us a son, our prayer is that he could become a missionary to the people of China. And I understand that Hudson Taylor's parents never told him that they prayed that prayer for him. But that was their burning desire. Hudson Taylor grew up. He moved to China. And it wasn't until after he lived there some years, came back to his family for a furlough, that for the first time his parents told him the prayer that they had prayed for him before he was born. That's greatness. Someone who is willing to serve God in an unseen way. Prepare the next generation to carry the word of God much further than what they can themselves. I was recently challenged by a thought, you know, we as parents, we like to pray that God would bless our children, do we not? You know, bless them in whatever endeavor they're doing. And I was challenged with the thought that perhaps what we really should be praying is that God would rather than just simply blessing our children, that God would make our children a blessing to other people, that God could use our children in ministry to him. And I just give that as encouragement, as where greatness may truly lie. Those unseen details that may never be known by man, but God sees them. The redwood tree has very small beginnings. I'd like to encourage you to never underestimate what God can do through someone who is willing to be used by him regardless of their beginnings, regardless of their background. I don't know what I can do. Who am I that I can do anything for God? D.L. Moody heard someone make the statement as a young man. He heard the statement, God has yet to see Excuse me. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is fully committed to him. And D.L. Moody said, by the grace of God, I'm going to be that person. He did not grow up as a Christian. He was he had other visions. He had other ambitions. But God gripped him and he served him with all that he had. Ruth, a pagan, a widow, childless, 
a foreigner, and yet God used her in a mighty way. Rahab, of despicable character, and yet God used her, a key figure in the conquest and also an ancestress in the line of Christ. Who was Moses? Well, he was a murderer, for one thing. He was a fugitive, running from the law, in hiding for 40 years, and yet God used him to lead his people for 40 years. Peter, common fisherman, the book of Acts, the Jewish leaders were confounded, you know, who are these unlearned men? But they took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. Never underestimate what God may want to do with you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Heard a story of a young slave boy by the name of Charlie. Grew up in slavery, and when Charlie was five years old, his mother did something, I don't know what, something that upset her master, and she was beaten so badly that she died. Little Charlie, as a five-year-old boy, witnessed this. And shortly thereafter, his father was sold into some other area. Charlie never saw his father again. So here he was, young boy, five-year-old, grew up as a slave. The only thing he knew was work from sunup to sundown. Not really anyone to care about him. Never went to school, never went to church. When Charlie was 15 years old, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, and suddenly he found himself a free person. Now, if you, as a 15-year-old, for the first time in your life, could do whatever you wanted to do, I wonder what you would do. Charlie had very little opportunity to ever go to church. But when he was 15 years old, he said, I want to go to church. And the first night he was free, I understand, he walked 12 miles one way to go to church. And he got to that church and he sat there and he heard something that just gripped his being. And uh, the, the message that he heard is that there was actually somebody who loved him. You see, Charlie really didn't know what love was before that. And that message gripped his heart. And that night, Charlie trusted Christ as his Savior. As he was talking to some of the people at the church afterwards, he said, we want to give you a Bible. They asked him, do you have a Bible? He said, no. He said, well, we will give you one. He said, well, I can't read. He said, well, you, you mean you, you can't read well? He says, I can't read at all. I never went to school a single day. He said, well, okay, we'll teach you to read. So they taught him to read. They taught him to read the Bible. And Charlie grew. He saw God and it changed his life. Only four years later, at the age of 19, Charlie told the people in his church, he said, you know, I feel the spirit of God within me calling me to preach, to preach his word. And someone in that church who obviously was not graced with a lot of tact, looked at Charlie and said, Charlie, now tell me, just how do you think you can be a preacher? Don't forget, you're nothing. And Charlie, with tears streaming down his face, looked back at that man. He said, you're right. He said, you know that I am nothing, and I know that I'm nothing. 
And I am sure that God in heaven knows that I'm nothing. But if the one who is everything wants to use someone who is nothing to do his work, I guess that's up to him. He must have learned pretty much in those four short years. Well, Charlie went on to start preaching. He went out on the streets and started 